Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Ma'amaduhu wa nusalli ala Rasulil Kareem amma ba'ad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing our study of Talal Asad, the formations of the secular, we are now on page 45. Shamanism, inspiration and sensibility. Okay. An accumulating ethnography of shamans in the 18th century contributed to the recrafting of the idea of inspiration in secular terms. This involved not only the shifting of all causation from the outside world of material bodies entirely into that world, but also an inside that had to be progressively redefined. That shift also served to separate healthy from unhealthy states of mind and behavior, and led in the thought of the thought of enlightenment rationalism to the doctrine that morality may be based on medical science rather than the other way around, as the older Christian view had it. Okay, so <clears throat> now a few things to think about. When we're speaking about the secular in terms of academic study, what we're talking about is what are you witnessing and how do you make sense of what are you witnessing when you're only allowed to look from the outside in. Okay. Meaning you don't know what's going on in someone's brain except for what you can witness, let's say through neurology. Mm. Yeah. And so then the question becomes where do ideas come from? Where do, where do other things that we're calling inspiration, where does it all come from? <laughs> because looking at it from the perspective of the observer, it has to be something that you can define. Like, you can't say this is coming from Allah. How do you verify that? Yeah. Right? So where is this coming from? Usually you're going to say evolution or experiences in the past. Something like that. And so, so basically, what we're saying here is that it shifted causation from outside the world of material bodies into the world. Okay? So, mm-hmm. means... So from, like, God or whatever. Yeah. To something we can observe. Exactly. Correct. And then, then whatever is inside uh, keeps getting defined and redefined. Part of it is as we get better and better ways to study people. Like, for example, neurology. So imagine it being possible at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, to hook up, well, to hook up a bunch of electrodes to him and observe his brain patterns in the moment of revelation, right? What would we discover? Or what if there's no change in his brain patterns, right? Because he's describing the feeling of revelation, you know, this very huge weight being put upon him. Um, maybe his brain patterns, all of them would be just off the charts, or maybe nothing. Besides curiosity, why would we do that? Or this engage is, in this thought experiment. Well, I mean, here we're, uh, all of this is just the search of knowledge. Oh. So it's like, why do we care, you know, how close other planets are and stuff? Oh, okay. This is okay. just, literally, it's just part of the search for knowledge. Oh, okay. Now, this then will connect, in the case of religion, with politics, oh. right? Um, because one of the points we discussed last time is that Excuse me. In the academic study of the Bible, you know, there's so much focus on history, and then history saying, then history itself is saying, okay, what you guys are studying in the Bible is not authentic, mm. right? 
But then what that also is doing, like we were saying yesterday, is that that's now sacralizing the historian. The historian starts getting a higher status than someone who's a witness to this divine-like figure. From the very beginnings of the encounter between Europeans and Aboriginal peoples, Christian doctrine and rational skepticism tended to describe shamans as demon worshippers, magicians, charlatans, or quacks, and the shamanic seance, with its drumming, its contorted gestures, and strange cries, as merely grotesque attempts at deception. Okay, so that's pretty, that makes sense, right? Um, as Europeans, European anthropologists were studying Aboriginal people. What does Aboriginal mean? Yeah, indigenous, essentially, um, or the original indigenous people. So um, Christian doctrine and rational skepticism used to basically look down on these people either as fake or, from a Christian lens, they're demon worshippers. Mm. How would we, in the Muslim community, evaluate something, let's say, like voodoo? What do you think? I'm saying the lay Muslim community, not the scholarly Muslim community. Black magic. You might say it's black magic, which is kind of like saying demon worshipping. What else? Yeah. Or how do we look at psychics? Uh, like, uh, sort of, gin uh, possession. Yeah, like we might say, yeah, gin possession. We might say that they're fake. All these exact same things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the same. Yeah. Things are like, uh, like, I forgot mm-hmm. what I'm looking for. So, that becomes then a way to write somebody off. Yeah. Right. Just like if you say, you know, we were talking about this person. If you say someone's crazy. You, that's a way to dismiss someone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to say someone else's religious practices are demon worship or, you know, jinn possession, black magic, it becomes a way to dismiss them mm-hmm. without engaging. Yeah. Do you think both Islam and Christianity do that to, like, non-Abrahamic traditions? Uh, I think... <clears throat> I mean, the, the possibility is there among lay people especially, even uh, uh, to, from the Abrahamic traditions, the people in the Abrahamic traditions to each other. Yeah. Right? And that becomes ways of basically reaffirming for yourself that we are the carriers of truth. Right? Um, and then a response to that can be, you know, when we talk about people of the book, that they have truth in there. And then defining, okay, who are the people of the book? The Quran doesn't tell you who are the people of the book, right? Mm-hmm. It is majority opinion that it definitely includes Jews and Christians. Historically, uh, you have some people who have argued that it includes Hindus. I don't know of anyone today who says that includes Hindus, right? But there were people in the past who would argue that. And, and um, that allows you to recognize that there is truth In these other things. Yeah. But then what science comes along and does is it says, okay, forget truth. We're looking at efficacy. Yeah. If you go through steps A, B, C, will that result in step D? Okay. And so if I pray, if five of us pray for something, can we define a result? Not necessarily. And, but... If someone has these symptoms of a jinn possession, and you put them through these steps, and you <clears throat> then lead them to something we would recognize as health, that does happen. And so science is looking at cause and effect, thus science is looking at efficacy. Mm. 
is, does what you're doing have an effect that is observable and repeatable? Right? So that's shifting the conversation from that which is truth to that which has results. The shamans claims to be able to divine and prognosticate were invariably dismissed in class with the priests and soothsayers of antiquity who had pretended to commune with the gods and spirits. But enlightenment demystification did not preclude a curiosity, in some reports at least, about shamanic healing abilities. Greater attention was given, therefore, to the theatricality of seances, which were sometimes acknowledged to be remarkable performances in which music and rhythm helped to enrapture an audience and soothe the sufferer. So see how they, how they, uh, how they defined it? It's the theatricality that soothes the sufferer as opposed to something that's in the unseen. Right. Yeah. There was some interest, too, in the natural substances used by shamans to cure or alleviate pain or illness. However, such interest came from a culture in which pain was increasingly regarded as having an origin entirely internal to a mechanistic world, and therefore susceptible only to the action of elements in that world. Okay, so, so then, looking at what the shaman does... Again, from an observable perspective. Uh, the shaman may be saying that, okay, you're possessed by a demon, and let me give you these, these uh, ingredients. But the, uh, the observer will say, okay, they're telling them they're possessed by a demon. But it doesn't mean demons even exist. And then part of the recipe is to tell you you're possessed by a demon, Part of the recipe is to do these other things with these ingredients, and then the result is this change. And it's keeping everything in this world, so there's no unseen. The only thing that would be unseen is something we haven't been able to see yet, as opposed to things that would be permanently in the unseen. The shaman was a striking figure striking example of occult powers that appeared to elude the world of nature. As in inha as inhabitants of the supernatural, they had to be explained, or explained away. Okay, same point, right. In 18th century Europe, the understanding of pain was undergoing momentous changes that have been retrospectively labeled secularization. Rosalind Ray, in her Medical History of Pain, describes a significant transformation in the deliberations of physicians belonging to the vitalist school. The myth of punishment for original sin was translated by the latter into the myth of punishment for transgressions against the laws of nature. For example, following a wrong diet or failing to exercise. So to translate that into <clears throat> what was happening uh, in our world, uh, it used to be, and you probably still have this in villages, um, that if someone was sick, they'd say shaitan's on them, right? <clears throat> but the physician will say, no, they have the flu. And so as knowledge increases, um, you'll have less and less of attributing unseen or things from the ghaib as the cause of an illness, but we are still doing that regarding mental health, right? Mental health is being treated as something that is a faith problem, meaning you need to pray more than you'll be fine, right? Uh, right, like if you're depressed. Like, yes, okay. exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this was a simple metaphorical translation by which nature was personified and endowed with an agency originally possessed by God. So that's the interesting point then. So it's effectively saying that nature is God. You know, Mother Nature. 
and but it's also then making God, there's still a concept of God, but then it's basically taking away God's abilities to the point that God becomes the deist God, someone who's just watching, who has no power. Right. But there was another and more interesting shift that Ray also identifies, one that was not merely a matter of metaphorical substitution, but of a change in the grammar of the concept. Citing attacks by the philosophies... Philosophies? Philosophes. Philosophes on the Christian justification of pain, a celebration of pain that begins with the myth of Christ's suffering. She notes that the discourse of sin and punishment was being set aside in favor of another. In this newer discourse, pain began to be objectified, set in the framework of a mechanistic philosophy, and cited within an accumulating knowledge of the living body acquired through the discipline of the dissection. Even a religious or indeed devout figure such as Haller writes ray of one of the great early experimenters could approach the question of pain without introducing religious obsessions it is true that this was easier for someone whose work involved experimenting on animals rather than being a physician that is someone be, that is being someone who cultivated in himself the arts of healing and comforting with Haller and the beginning of the experimental method, the definition of sensibility and the respective functions of the nerves and the muscles found themselves based more on, on more scientific foundations. That is to say, activity and passivity, passivity are distinguished in empiricist terms, by which feeling is attributed to the former and denied to the latter. Okay, so, so you see what this evolution is. Starting from saying that, okay, someone's experience of pain has some supernatural explanation, like, okay, that's a taste of Christ's suffering, that's a good thing. Or, um, you know, you have a gene on you or something like that. Um, little by little, it starts shifting by removing the unseen from it and looking more at the mechanics of the body, mechanics of your environment, mechanics of your conduct. And then that's um, becoming the explanation, leading to what we have as today's system of medicine. Right? And another way to think about this, so many people say we need a Muslim hospital. What is a Muslim hospital going to do that's different than you know, every other hospital? Right? Usually nobody has an answer to that. There's this sense that if it's a Muslim hospital, then the whole operation is going to be different. Now, there's going to be a couple practices that might be different. Be name, like. It's going to be the name. They'll probably have a musallah. Yeah. Right? Um, and there might be some particular treatments that they may not do, like in the sense that a Catholic hospital will not do an abortion, right? Oh. Um, but otherwise, the physicians might be non-Muslims. They're going to hire, they're not going to hire people just because they're Muslim. They're going to hire the best physicians that they can, right? And so the point being that if it was going to be so-called Islamic medicine, that might be something different. But even a lot of things that we identify as Islamic medicine are just the medicines of other cultures that we have, you know, imported. You know. Yeah. All right. In this example, the secularization of pain signals not merely the abandonment of a transcendental language, religious obsessions, but the shift to a new preoccupation from the personal attempt at consoling and curing, that is, inhabiting a social relationship, to a distant attempt at investigating the functions and sensations of the living body. Pain is inflicted in systematic fashion on animals in order to understand its physiological basis. So on the one hand, we have pain inhabiting a discourse between patient and physician. 
On the other, pain is the reading made through experimental observation in a context where, as De Certo noted, language has become deontologized. Okay, so what does that mean, deontologized? Deontologized. I mean, I mean, yeah, that's it. I mean, we're basically saying that this worldview that was defining pain, right, connected with mythology, is now like just gone. Now it's become very functional. Okay. Mm -hmm. Meaning. Pain is being caused by inflammation in the body, which is being caused by X, Y, Z. Before it was, so, like, it was connect. How was it framed before? So before, there'd be some religious language in there, ah. right? Like, your sins are being dropped away from you. Yeah. Mm. It is this latter model that informs enlightenment skepticism towards the shaman's curative claims, mixed up as they are with ecstatic displays and inspiration by invisible spirits and helps to constitute the secular domain of physiological knowledge through written reports of experimental results. The contrast is not properly described in terms of disenchantment, when what is at stake <clears throat> are different patterns of sensibility about pain and different ways of objectifying it. Thus, a question that preoccupied Haller in his animal experiments was whether pain was the product of the stimulus or of the body part to which it was applied. It was in order to resolve this problem that in his experiments, Haller multiplied and diversified the types of reagent and means to stimulate a given part using a process of elimination. Thus, he successfully applied thermal stimulants, mechanical stimulants, tearing, cuts, etc., and chemical stimulants, oil of vitriol, spirit of nitrate, to each part. Electricity, and particularly galvanism when it was discovered, also provided a means of measuring the irritability of the parts and their residual vitality after death. The entire body was thoroughly investigated from head to toe. Membranes, cellular tissue, tendons, and aponeuroses? Yeah, I guess. Aponeuroses, bones and cartilages, muscles, glands, nerves, etc. The concept of experience that had from early on had the sense of putting something to the test was now being used to identify an internal state through an external manipulation experiment. Okay. So, a lot of this I think um, you get, right? That just think of the, ev the evolution of the study of the human body. Okay. And what we're adding to that that is forgotten is the evolution of the study of the human body is not just the result of increased study and better technology. It's also a shift away from causes that are in the unseen. And that's the secularization of medicine. Or secularization of pain and then healing from pain. Okay. Yeah. Meaning, would you think that, all right, you have someone who makes dua before they go in for surgery, and someone who doesn't make du'a before they go in for surgery, are they going to have two different results? We don't know. It depends. The secularist will say no. Okay. The person of belief will say maybe. It's up to Allah. Yeah. Right? And, and the other thing is the results might be uh, so like on the other side, so to speak. Right? Like uh -huh. Just making du'a is, is an act in itself that can uh -huh. get you something... Uh -huh. In the hereafter. Like. So you may not even get cure, but at least it'll be recognized on the other side. Yeah. But from the secular perspective, the other side doesn't, you know, exactly. isn't in their realm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems to me that the person who prays, whatever, they just have more to gain, you know. Explain. I. Oh, sorry. Oh, what does that mean? Where even, even let's say you, you know, a secular person might not believe in whatever the unseen world that they're going to gain something, but 
they might gain, you know, that their belief system might allow them to gain something psychologically that, you know, either, hey, I'm going to be cured if I, you know, part, partly because I'm praying to God, but even if I'm not, I'm getting something out of it later, and that might, that might be better for their, like, outlook, you know, post-surgery, whereas someone... Well, in this world. In this world. And then that, that would be something that you could then apply data to. Yeah. Right? So have... A thousand people who are making a prayer before, uh, before this uh, surgery, and have a thousand people not, and see if you can detect any differences in results. Mm. That would be something that you could you could analyze then from a secular perspective. Isn't you know? uh, isn't the act of prayer also an acknowledgement of like your submission to God? Right, like so it's not it's not about like the efficacy, so to speak. It's just saying well, whatever the result is. Is whatever God wants, and this is sort of me just like submitting to that in a mm-hmm. way. Well, I mean, this goes back to the point that from a dunya perspective, the search is for efficacy. Yeah. Give me something that works, right? Uh, from the deen perspective, we're saying, uh, give me something that will be accepted. Right? Oh, that's that makes sense. Because you know, when you said dunya perspective, I was like, wait, but don't spiritual aspirants do that as well? When they go to their teachers, they want something that works, but then. You phrase it, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's even better. Mm-hmm. You're giving something that's accepted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Would you, would you expand that out to say that, like, the point of religion isn't necessarily efficacy in this dunya? From a, uh, from a secular perspective or from a religion perspective? Both. I would say, if we're to speak of Islam... <coughs> then the ultimate, if we were to minimize it, then the efficacy would be, you know, to pass and make it at least into the lowest level of paradise, right? But better than that would be to make it the highest level of paradise. And better than that would be also to have the highest of dunya. Highest of dunya doesn't necessarily mean the most money. Yeah. Uh, It could be the most excellence. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, I mean, it's... The top level, of, uh, top level of dunya and the best, the top level of the akhira and the best of dunya, right? So I'd say all those things would be there, but if we were to make it down to its bare, 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 bare minimum, it'd be to get the lowest possible grade that'll still get you into paradise. Right? Or the highest possible grade that will keep you out of hell. Yeah. Or I should say the lowest possible grade that'll keep you out of hell. Yeah. Yeah. And from an Islamic perspective, um, from a Christian perspective, it's harder to say um, uh, that the answer might be the acceptance of Jesus as your Lord and Savior on this side, and then you know He'll be there for you on the other side. But uh, what's interesting that is often surprising for Muslims is that um, even Christians don't give as much focus to the Akhirah as we do, right? mm. or I should say, modern modern. Christians. Yeah. It's there, eternal life, um, but the amount of detailed attention we give, um, it doesn't seem that Christians give. And then often Jews will give even less, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are definitely Christians who give a whole lot of attention to the afterlife. There's definitely a whole lot of Jews who do, uh, but by percentage it seems way more Muslims give way more attention to the afterlife. It, it sometimes even feels like people who aren't necessarily attached to the tradition 
or into the practices of it, they do that well as well too. What does that mean? I don't know. I just feel like Muslims, like, you know, they might not be practicing. They might not. Oh, so you're saying like less practicing Muslims. Yeah, but yeah, even they so. themselves to a certain extent. Like, I feel like, I don't know, again, this this might be anecdotal, but I just feel like, I just, you know, certain Muslims, they won't, they'll be off the path, so to speak, but then they'll be like, you know, oh, I'll get myself back on or I'll do something later or I'll do something, you know, mm-hmm. there's always something there where they're like, but it's, it's with the idea that they're, gonna do something for the Akhira. Like mm-hmm. that's that's very yeah. I mean that plays out especially in uh when someone dies. Yeah. The funeral has to be done properly. Right? So it might be someone who in their life never enters a masjid except when it's time for the death of a loved one. Mm-hmm. Right? Um and then to some degree marriage, uh to some degree wills. Right. So it's there very, very frequently. Um there's another point I want to draw our attention to that you just reminded me of, this idea of disenchantment. So by making everything focused on the processes of the body, you're making the body and the universe itself mechanical. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, all cause and effect. And you're removing this idea of enchantment. And the idea of enchantment is, what it means in this context is this sense that there's something bigger going on. Mm. Right? Whether it's Allah controlling everything, um, or angels everywhere, or what have you. Um, that's what's being erased. I think there's a... This reminds me of uh, something from uh, Milana Rumi. I remember reading some translation of one of his poems. And I think he, he talks about like a sense of amazement or wonder at the world. And he says, you know, give me that over something else. I forget what the mm-hmm. counter was, but just someone who's just like, just amazed at it all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, the, uh, another thing I wanted to bring up is... Was, when there was, he was initially, like, started the thing about shamans, I was going to ask you, this reminded, I heard, I don't know if this was a sociologist, because I feel like, I heard this in a song, and, like, this was a clip of, they were interviewing somebody, uh, he was, he was an academic, but he said, he's making this point about, he said, in pre, sort of, modern societies, he said that, you know, the, the role that, say, poets have now, and, you know, we talked about poetry earlier, too, he said, that role was occupied in, in, like, every culture across the world by shamans. He said something along. I don't know, like, it was very, very interesting. And he, he went into how, basically, if you study, like, shamanism and, and you, you know, all these cultures, they all have this one unifying experience that at some point they all, like, oh. apparently... Remember that song? I, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, they all apparently, at, at some point in their life, they all have this, like, near-death experience where they... Yeah like, lose consciousness and, you know, experience something beyond their consciousness, and they come back, and, you know, then they, they're shamans, and he was relaying the poetry. I didn't, you know, I didn't get to, like, get, you know, read the, get to the actual source, but it just reminded me of this. Well, I mean, one thing, if, if we frame shamans as theatrical, mm-hmm. then it might be fair to say that we look at shamans the same way today we look at celebrities, Right, I mean, why do people flock yeah. to celebrities? It's yeah. like you know, even just to get a glimpse of a celebrity, it's like almost like this feeling that there's something special about them. You like know? you're living through them or something. Whatever it is, maybe yeah. they have some special ability, special power. Maybe they can give me something, and so uh, anyone who's a celebrity, and you even see this play out in our community, that if there's someone mm-hmm. that we see on TV, mm-hmm. someone who's in the news articles. If they're coming into town, then people are going to race to them. Yeah. And, but what are they going to get? Yeah. You know, nobody thinks that far. 
And that can be, if we look at the shamans as theatrical. If, however, we look at the shamans as physicians, then it would be like what we look at physicians, you know. You know, when you're talking about that, like, uh, especially with, like, Muslim celebrity, so to speak, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't have an issue with people, like, kind of, like, oh, this person's here, like, being really excited, like... It's the same as, like, if you saw, like, when you said that, I remember, I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw Vince Vaughn on a flight once. Like, mm-hmm. I, I remembered that. And I remember thinking, whoa, this is cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right? Remember that? And then, like, or, like, there's so many moments where you run into different people and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I know this guy. But I guess the, the thing about Muslim, or, like, reli- forget Muslim, religious celebrity is uh, you're trying to get something, you're trying to make it more. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? You're trying I mean, to... it's reminding me of this one guy who came to my office around 2010 yeah, or no, so. Yeah, let's not talk about it. <laughs> He's like, do you know? Yeah. Or is that you? Yeah. That guy was stupid. <laughs> but, like, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I'm going to get something more because, yeah. like, no, I'm, I'm like, that's what kind of bothered me. It's like, oh, I'm going, we're going to get closer to Allah, it's going to be so much benefit. I'm like, yeah. you're going because the guy's famous. That's yeah. fine. It's fine. But don't try to, like... Uh-huh upsell it you uh-huh. know what I mean like yeah. the reality seems always very um, dull and very sort of empty compared to what you're hoping like I sure. I feel like in my experience of just meeting these people and not even like I having shot them you just meet them and you're like that was very that was awkward it. and different yeah, it's like, not even like sometimes it even like sort of and not to not to it lower like lowers the celebrity a little bit I remember <laughs> except the <Dark> Ramadan <laughs> What? Dark Ramadan Rose. Yeah, Dark Ramadan, like... He was the, one of the most heartwarming yeah, people we've ever the, met. The celebrity of it, like, I, yeah. I drank the Kool-Aid. I was like, <laughs> no, this is amazing. <laughs> I think also just because we spent so much time with him, I yeah, think yeah. if we maybe spent, like, 10, 15 minutes with him, we would have been different, but we spent so much time. You get, you get to see people like that, yeah. and you just know his warmness is just it, yeah. off the charts. But yeah. uh, I remember, like, one time, with, like, a famous scholar, like, he, he flew our airline to get come over here, and then I remember, like, he was just, he asked me, he goes, I was just like, oh, so I said salam now. I was like, I was like, it shocked me. Like, he was just, he boarded, like, right there. I was boarding uh-huh. the flight. He boarded. I'm like, can I ask, was it, was it? We're not going to put. Not the I, name, not the name. I just want to know, was he flying coach or first class? I, I won't reveal that yet either. But, like, he, he was, he was flying. And I was like, what the heck? Like, you know, he just yeah. caught me off guard. And then I was like, so I like him. And then, you know, he's like, well, I'm good, da, da, da. And then he's like. You know, I feel like I saw you somewhere. You must have attended one of my lectures or something. And I was like, no, I never wow. attended any of your lectures. It's just so awkward. Like, <laughs> I didn't say that. I was like, maybe, yeah. But in my head, I'm like, dude, no. Like, I've never. <laughs> He's like, dude, I hate you. No, no, I was like, no, the only, I was like, the only lecture I attended was a, like, a huge speech at Isno. And, like, I was like, a thousand feet away from you. There's no way yeah. you like. And then he's know. like, "You were wearing a red shirt." Yeah, it, you know. And you're like, "How did you know?" No, but like, <laughs> so it was like, you know, I, I was like thinking to myself, I was like, "This isn't like this isn't it." Other scholars as well, like you just this isn't like you know you imagine like Adnan said you you kind of like you're as a sort of aspirin again. You kind of go hoping to feel like it'll be this like there's something. Yeah, or that. you know it'll be like those stories people say like, "Oh, I met him," and there's the nur on his face yeah. or something, and you're like. It seems fairly normal. Yeah, and yeah, a lot of that enchantment goes away, like when you shake their hands and yeah. you feel their fingers and their bones and everything. And, <laughs> yeah. just, um, and Zephyr's like, and then I have my man hand. <laughs> it's so tiny to me. <laughs> All right, let's continue. Yeah. Uh, 
Were you? However, yeah. however, the claims of quacks to whom shamans were often likened were not always dismissed. Jerome Gaub, member of the Royal Society in Peru. Royal Society is this British society that's kind of responsible for a lot of these shifts in, in the world thinking. Richard Isaac Newton Feynman. was part of the Royal Society. Yeah, so was uh, Richard Feynman, right? Maybe, I don't know. I don't know if he was. Okay. Jerome Gaub, member of the Royal Society and professor of medicine, regarding the rhetoric and the credulity? Yeah, believability. Uh, credulity and uh, it addressed as valuable for healing. It is this faith that physicians greatly wish for, since the, if they know how to pr procure it for themselves from the ill, they render them more obedient and are able to breathe new life into them with words alone. Moreover, they find the power of their remedies to be increased and the results more certain. The extravagant performances of Mount, Mountbanks, or Mountbanks, Mountbanks, who promise cures aroused wonder, and wonder led to hope. The arousal of the bodily organs is sometimes such that the vital principles cast off their torpidity and the tone of the nervous system is restored, the movements of the humors are accelerated, and nature then attacks and overcomes with her own powers a disease that prolonged treatment has opposed in vain. Let those fortunate enough to have more rapidly recovered by means of these empty arts than by means of approved systems of healing congratulate themselves, I say, on having regained their health regardless of the reason. For Gaub, healing was a social process in which the inspiration of the healer was validated not by its occult source, but by its salutary effect. And there it is, efficacy, right? Not the source, but the effectiveness. Yeah. Interest in the mind-altering substances by interest in the mind-altering substances used by shamans was to develop much later. But in the 18th century, another aspect of the shaman figure was being taken much more seriously: the shaman as poet, myth recounter, and performing artist. Gloria Flaherty summarizes the reports of Johann Georgi, who describes Central Asian shamanism and connected it to the connected it to the origin of the verbal arts. Like the oracles of antiquity, he wrote, contemporary shamans and shamankas, women shamans, spoke in an extraordinarily flowerly and unclear language so that what they said could be applicable in all cases, whatever the outcome. Actually, he added, it was necessary that they did so because their believers, who had only hieroglyphs, no alphabet, themselves only knew how to communicate by sharing images and sensations. The litany was one favored form because its rhythms and tones affected the body directly, without appeal to the higher faculty of reason. Georgie cited their particular kind of nervous system as the cause. People of such makeup and such irritability must be rich in dreams, apparitions, superstitions, and fairy tales. And they are too. Shamans, far from being mere charlatans, were, as Herder more famously declared, oral poets, sacred musicians, and healing performers for healing performance who, for all the tricks they might use, enable their audiences to sense in their own souls a force greater than themselves. Okay, so what might be within the summoning of these powers or beings from the unseen or even the divine self from the outside is part of the theatricality. Um, and you go along with it believing that I'm getting something bigger, right? And then that becomes part of the process of, of the cure. And so basically they're just talking about how they try to explain all these things. 
Thank you. Let's continue. If shamanic rhetoric and behavior were to be viewed as art, some artists could be viewed as shamans. If ecstasy had been a sign of mantic, mantic, yeah. mantic inspiration, it was becoming an indication of artistic genius. Flaherty writes of the evolving theory of genius in 18th century Europe that drew on the classical myths of Orpheus as well as the ethnographic descriptions of shamans, a theory that eventually focused on the extraordinary interna international phenomenon of Mozart. That he was often likened to Orpheus by his audiences was, says Flaherty, part of the mythologization of the great artist, of his healing and civilizing powers acquired through inspiration. So this is another fascinating thing. How much of, or how recent all this old mythology was. So he's giving the example of Mozart in the question of genius and artistic genius. Whereas today, how do we define someone as a genius? IQ. IQ, right? It's this thing that is culturally biased, but this measurement of the power of their brain. And then we have this other thing, the EQ, right? Um, whereas before, uh, emotional quotient instead of intellectual quotient. And so that's basically, you know, how, you know, how resilient are you? How are you, how are you able oh. to answer, handle all the things that happen in your life? Whereas not that long ago, uh, this was still connected to some mythology that, you know, someone, when they have genius, they have some special thing about them. Right. And again, like we do that right now. I think we talked about yesterday. Elon Musk, prior to him, um, Steve Jobs, prior to him, Bill Gates, and then I had some other people that, and then I thought maybe even like the astronauts, we might have done that, you know, back oh, then. Oh, Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong specifically, yeah, Buzz Aldrin, um, and then going back all the way at least to Einstein and Tesla and all those people, like just some sense that, okay, it wasn't just brain power, okay, like where did that brain power come from then, mm. right? Why is it that you don't have the child of a genius be a genius and then their children, the, the next child be a genius? Mm -hmm. It's like this person just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, this this, I remember a, a Middle Eastern Studies teacher, like a philosophy teacher of mine, telling me, I don't know if you, you can confirm, but he says the word genius partially comes from uh, Majnun. Oh, really? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. That, that's interesting. And he, you know, for, and so I. I don't know if he said it somewhere, I read it somewhere, but I know someone like academic was saying it, and they said that this is also sort of ties into Majnun in, in Arabic, in that culture, it meant someone possessed by jinns. Mm. And so the poets were often said to be Majnun, they were possessed, and that's how they would come up with these amazing verses. Mm. Man, where did I read this? Oh. I, I want to say maybe Islam man. Mohammed Man and Prophet had this as well. Okay, maybe. But yeah, so it sounds it like something the Sandals would say. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a interesting sort of, um, uh, you know, like to this where they're talking about poetry and like that'd be interesting if that connection like mm -hmm. Arabic that you know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, does she cites? Right. Yeah. Does she cites among other contemporaries the physician Simon Tissot. Yeah. who describes the stamp of genius that Mozart's music-making displayed. He was sometimes involuntarily driven to his harpsichord, as by a sudden force, Tissot wrote, and he drew from it sounds that were, 
the, li the living expression of the idea that had just seized him. One might say that at such moments he is an instrument at the command of music, imagining him like a set of strings, harmoniously arranged with such art that a single one cannot be touched without all the others being set in motion. He plays all the images, as a poet versifies and a painter colors them. This idea of inspiration was thus deduced from the artist's extraordinary performance, best described as a consequence of his being seized by an external force. So who in, uh, in the Muslim world do we speak about this way? I have one person in mind about whom we really often speak about this way. Recited? A specific person. Abdul Basir? No. Nah. Mishari? No, nah, not, not, not Quran reciter. You guys are going to go, oh, yeah. Bukhari? Iqbal. Or not. Okay. I get that. I get that. <laughs> yeah, you look at me, and then, he, then the no, and then it's just such disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> My aunt... It's funny because I was researching this for my poetry class. I had a poetry class last semester, and I did something on him. And my mother and my aunt always used to tell me, and I think this is an urban myth about him, where they, and you can confirm, where they said that he would often, uh, before he went to sleep, he would often write the starting word of a poem and then write the ending word. He would go to sleep, and sometime at night he would wake up and he would fill it all in. Interesting. I, you told I mean, me that before. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that's the type of language that we're yeah. seeing exactly here, yeah. right? Or there's this <clears> other <throat> thing, like the first time, you know, Iqbal began to, like, come up with poems, like something was happening to him, and he tells his servant to start hitting him, you know, with the side of his hand and the back of his neck, and then these verses of poetry start coming out, like one yeah. legendary night. But that's exactly how... They're speaking about Mozart, and that's exactly how, in our community, in the subcontinent, we often speak about Iqbal. And it's so weird, so deflating, yeah. when you talk to, like, a scholar of Persian poetry, they're like, well, what do you think about Iqbal? And you want him to say, oh, Iqbal is almost like a prophet or something. Like, oh, yeah, he was a good poet. He does this style and that style. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you just totally ruin I, it. I feel like, I, for, like, every Persian person I've met to, like, inter poetry. Like, they're like, you know, for me, like, Urdu is, like, amazing. And they're like, yeah, Urdu kind of sucks. And I'm just like, what? No, stop. Like, it's hurting me. I mean, uh, this is, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know if that's a thing in poetry, too. Because I remember uh, the, just a few weeks ago, one of, like, a, one of the most famous poets of the Caribbean passed away. I forget his name. But he wrote this really long, like, he's famous for this really long, like, myth poem or something. It's called Omeros, I think. But he said something similar, too. It's funny. Like, he said, don't ever, like, force yourself to write. He said, like, write when it comes to you. Like, don't ever, like, mm. force yourself to write. You know, just sit down. Where, like, for example, like, authors will often say that. They say, like, just write, 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 yeah, write. exactly. And, you know, you'll get better. And you'll yeah. Make... That's, that's what Hebert says. Yeah, and you know, so... The muse, the muse comes to you after you start writing. Yeah, but this guy was just, like, he was, like... Just let it let it come, and if it don't if it doesn't come, don't force it. Mm, interesting. I wonder if a lot of poets do that. Okay. All right, a little bit more. Johann Salzer, a theorist of the fine arts, wrote in more general terms 
All artists of any genius claim that from time to time they experience a state of extraordinary psychic intensity, which makes work unusually easy, images arising without great effort, and the best ideas flowing in such profusion as if they were the gift of some higher power. This is without doubt what is called inspiration. If an artist experiences this condition, his object appears to him in an unusual light, his genius, as if by guided as if guided by a divine power, invents without effort, shaping his invention in the most suitable form without strain. The finest images, the finest ideas and images occur unbidden in floods to the inspired poet. The orator judges with the greatest acumen, feels with the greatest intensity, and the strongest and most vividly expressive words rise to his tongue. So what was also interesting about Mozart, one, one of the legends attributed to him, is all of his works were first drafts. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So Beethoven, on the other hand, the it, other it would be yeah, it would be draft after draft after draft after draft after draft until he reaches perfection. He's a torture genius. Yeah, the torture genius. Yeah, good way to put it. And whereas Mozart, it just all came out. You know. Such statements, Flaherty argues, are strongly reminiscent of accounts of shamanism. In this case, of a shaman described not skeptically but in wonderment. They employ the idea of inspiration metaphorically as control of an instrument from outside the person or as a gift from a higher power. But these remain metaphors, covering an inability to explain a disorderly phenomenon in natural terms. So that's, that's what it all comes down to, right? You're trying to explain uh, something within the, the, uh, what you have available in dunya. Nothing from the unseen. But when the physician Melchior Weichard locates his explanation entirely in terms of human physiology, a genuine exchange in the language has taken place. A genius, a human being with exalted imaginative powers, must have more excitable brain fibers than other human beings, he speculates. Those fibers must be set into motion quicker and more easily, so that lively and frequent images arise. Regardless of the adequacy of such explanations from the perspective of a later century, a secular discourse of inspiration now referred entirely to the abilities of the natural body and to their social demonstration. The genius, like the shaman, was at once object, performer, and reproducer of myth. For Immanuel Kant, a genius was simply someone who could naturally exercise his co cognitive faculties wonderfully without having to be taught by anyone. We say that he who possesses these powers to a super, superior degree has a head, and he who has a small measure of these faculties is called a simpleton, because he always allows himself to be guided by other persons. Well, we call him a genius who makes use of originality and produces out of himself what must ordinarily be learned under the guidance of others. A genius was the product of nature, and what he produced was natural, albeit singular. For this reason, it could be appreciated by a cultivated audience ex exercising judgments of taste. Okay, so that last part, I mean, it's, it's basically uh, just a sentence. The genius can be, uh, can be appreciated by a particular type of audience, right? Like, I mean, a lot of people aren't going to find Mozart interesting, but if, if it's an audience that's cultivated with a certain type of taste, then they will find Mozart to be amazing and beautiful and all that stuff. But what is the overall theme of all this? Looking at shamans, looking at prodigies, and what's common in them is, is historically a way to describe their abilities 
using things from the unseen, but now the difficulty of trying to describe them using worldly methods. Because right. uh, he describes it as like a singularity, right? And I yeah. wonder how they would, those people would describe like prophets. Because yeah, as geniuses, basically. Yeah, yeah, because like you know, especially with the prophets, Ali Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't think he has a parallel. It, even I guess from a secular perspective, right, mm -hmm. or from like just looking at terms of effect on this world, like one man was able to come up with like not just a religion, but sort of a way of life, uh, legal text, right? Uh, basically, like what stemmed from the prophet was an entire world civilizational code, right? Mm -hmm. And it was the basis of world civilizations, mm -hmm. like plural, right? Being India, Africa, mm -hmm. right? Whatever. Uh, and is, I don't know, is there a parallel to a figure like that in history who is able to, uh, able to be the foundation for so many different things? So, I mean, that's Michael Hart's argument, right? That book that all the Desi aunties and uncles love. Yeah. <laughs> and every semester I'll have, like, one student that will quote it. Yeah. You know, the 100 most influential people of all time. And yeah. then he says, yeah, everyone is either influential in the realm of religion, in the realm of society, or in the realm of one other thing. I forgot what. Like, war or something like that. And, and the Prophet Muhammad, peace is the only person who is successful, uh, who is uh, a marked, marked success in all of them, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, yeah, I mean, all the big people of history, another way to frame it is, okay, uh, if we remove these people from history, um, how world-altering would it be? So if you remove Jesus or if you remove Paul, um, if you remove Aristotle, who knows who else? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we would argue, yeah, the prophet, he's the completion, being the completion of Wahi, that, yeah, it's the full package now. Yeah. Uh, whereas many prophets came in twos. Isa came with Yahya. Uh, Musa came with Harun, you know, alayhi yeah. salam and such. Um, whereas Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, is one. Uh, That's interesting. I haven't even like that. Yeah, no, just to me, because, like, usually with geniuses and the way we see geniuses, they're very good at one particular thing. Yeah. And they excel, even, like, Elon Musk, right? Yeah. Or, like, or Steve Jobs, like, they're, they excel and they make their company whatever, but mm -hmm. if you look at their personal lives, if you examine the individual, yeah. you might find chaos and like yeah. things that are like, totally. whoa, this guy's crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Even Steve Jobs, for example, he was like, I'm not going to be treated, right? And it led to his death. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I'm just going to keep eating watermelon or something. Right, like, yeah. and like, you know, a regular, but that he, you know, he had a very treatable thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, even like, I mean, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine a couple of days ago. Uh, who's in business, and he was saying the greatness of Steve Jobs was not his vision or his ideas. It was the fact that he was able to execute them. Yeah, he packaged the, the best package. Yeah. But I was saying even just the, the, to get it made, Yeah. right? Because the idea of a tablet, I mean, it's not nothing profound about that, right? But no one's been able to do it. He was able to do it, right? You know, or the electric car or whatever, whatever we're talking about, you know, that everyone's, people have been talking about electric cars for a long time. And there have been some lower quality electric cars preceding Tesla, but he would, so he's an executor. Well, he's not even the founder of Tesla. Yeah, that was the interesting thing about the book. Right? It's like, like, none of those are his ideas. Right. Yeah. Like, Tesla was, it was actually a really cool company, but he was the, this investor, this eccentric mm -hmm. guy who bought it. Yeah. And he's taking it somewhere. But that's there's, there's also a struggle for power, too. Yeah. Right. Steve Jobs is so, Steve Jobs is basically uh, the guy who, uh, Ford. Ford, these are eight, kind of like a Ford, except um, 
So, in the sense, in the sense of making it happen. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, I'd be interested to see what other ideas there are historically. Or another way to think about this is Da Vinci has models for airplanes, but it's not until like three hundred later years later that someone actually flies. Yeah. And so we can say Da Vinci's a genius because he he has all these drawings, mm -hmm. but someone else comes along and actually makes it happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But genius, yeah. I mean, it seems as though the prophet peace be upon him is a success in every single aspect of his life. Yeah, and it would probably be fair to uh, say that. Yeah, I mean, it's almost impossible to find someone else, especially someone else who's not a prophet. Could yeah. could you also say that you know prophets on some level they 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 supersede genius or they, they, they go beyond it, like our sort of notions of it because for example to give a parallel from like the Prophet Sallallahu life right where you I, I, there's that story of where some of the chiefs took like the Quran and there's this like really famous poet who's like a hermit and he lived in some cave somewhere and people would throw him like poetry they wrote and he would sort of rate it he was a genius guy or something right and they did it with the Quran, and he was like, this isn't from a man, this mm -hmm. is, you know, and so, I think, like, to me, like, genius on some level seems, maybe this is how we talk about it now as this, well. You're, I think you're illustrating the exact point. Yeah, of where it seems sort of like very dunia-y. Yeah, that's right? exactly what we're saying here. Yeah. That, uh, from using our language from within belief, we're saying he is guided, right? From the language, from a secular outlook, we'd say he's a genius, right? It's interesting because, like, you know, even with it's, with it's sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, even with like the the sort of secular language we we yeah. use, it, it seems to me just you know being into like being into the arts and music and stuff like that, especially music. A lot of musicians, especially, they tend to the language they use to describe themselves when they're creating music tends to be sort of you know. Um, Harkening back, sort of to this older mm -hmm. mode, where like I remember, there's that you know that that song from DJ Shadow. He has that building scene with the greatest song. Where's the guy? Teacher, yeah, no, no. He says, he says like you know I'm I'm making music or whatever. And he's like it doesn't seem like I'm the one making music. It's not me. He's like the music's coming through me. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's not me. You know, and I've heard different like a, yeah. a bunch of different artists say that. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like even Dell, you know, he says that. He's like it, we don't make it. He's like, it just, it's something, we're conduits, basically. Like, yeah. the artist is a conduit. Is, it's like a very interesting concept, I think. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll stop here. What page is that? Page 52, at, at Myth, Poetry, and Secular Sensibility. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nasafiru kanatubi ilaik, wa akhil da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.